This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. Here's a question for you. Is the New Testament the inspired word of Yehovah, or is it a fraudulent document of cherry-picked verses to force the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies? Nehemiah Gordon joins Michael Rood to weigh the evidence tonight, because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Shabbat Shalom, Torah fans. Welcome to Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood. I'm your host, Scott Laird. Please welcome my co-host, the Chief Operating Officer of Arood Awakening International, Ted Clayton. Well, it's great to be here, Scott, and happy Shabbat to everyone out there. Indeed. You know, it's a great thing to have Michael back in the chair here. Well, it's recorded before he had right. the stroke. It was, it was recorded before he had the stroke, and I just wanted to give a quick health update uh, for how Michael is uh, doing right now. Michael is doing great. He continues to work with his speech therapists. He continues to work with his physical therapist, and he's there. here are some pictures uh, that show Michael doing that right now, and he wants me to give everybody his love and tell each and every one of you that he will be back very, very soon. Yeah, and in fact, we really appreciate those who are concerned about Michael. Yes. Thank you for your well wishes on Facebook and yes, things. Indeed. And the videos that have come in, literally hundreds of videos have come in for Michael uh, wishing him well. And once again, Folks, you cannot believe how much love he feels from those videos and your uh, emails and, and cards and so forth. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for helping Michael get through this and get back to us as quickly as he can. Indeed, and even if, you, if you're watching this from another country and you're thinking, well, I don't speak English that well and I don't know if I should do a video. We have videos from other countries where- All the time. People are just trying their best. Michael appreciates those. Even Everything. if you feel that you, yes. you don't speak English well, that's okay, do it's it anyway. Okay. Okay, mm -hmm. and folks, if you do speak English well, and those folks are doing it, yeah, you need to do it. That's right. <laughs> Michael That's right. appreciates those videos more than anything else because it allows him to interact in a way with with folks by video. And uh, for, for those who are concerned about his, you know, is Michael okay? That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's. Ted, you and I have visited him, and, yes. and we can both verify that his mind is all oh, there. Oh, Sharp's attack, man. If, if his problem is right now his speech is a little slurred and so forth. So he's he's working with uh, speech therapists, and by the way, his speech has improved immensely. Yes, it has. Yeah. Since, uh, since him working with these great professionals. And uh, so he's working real hard, ladies and gentlemen. As you can see in these pictures, it's just, it's just a marathon. I keep saying that every time because a lot of folks, especially our Ambassador Club members on Facebook and so forth, saying, well, give us an update on Michael. Give us an update. But if you've had family members who've had a stroke before, you know that it's a marathon, not a sprint. So it's a, it's, it's a, a continuous improvement. Mm -hmm. And he just, he just 
continues to work hard and hard. That's the hardest working Marine I've ever seen, ladies and gentlemen, and he, he's gonna get back to us. Indeed, and now speaking of working hard and uh, getting back to day by day, let's look at the astronomically and agriculturally corrected biblical Hebrew calendar. There you see it on your screen now. It is the fifth and final Shabbat in the 11th month on the, uh, on the calendar there. And uh, this is one of the last pages in our calendar. Now it mm -hmm. does go through June. Yes. So if you yes. have one, don't worry, it's a go through June. That, yes. That's uh, still a thing. Yeah. Uh, but now we have the new calendar available. Oh, and the new calendar is absolutely fantastic, yes. ladies and gentlemen. You are going to love this new calendar. And the reason why is because all the photos are from Mary Nell Wyatt's book, Battle for the Firstborn. Mm -hmm. This is a book in which, uh, long story short, she reveals that the, the young boy or the, the firstborn son of Pharaoh who died in the 10th plague of Egypt right. was none other than King Tut. Yes. The most famous ancient Egyptian of all, discovered in the 1920s. We didn't know it at the time. She now reveals in her book plenty of photos, and that's why we used her book, because she had yeah. so many photos in here. We asked her, we said, Mary Nell, could we use your book to put all these beautiful photos that she and Randall actually took. She went yes. to all kinds of museums, yes. got uh, exclusive access to some uh, tombs that were essentially closed off. Mm -hmm. She was the only one allowed in there, took photos, yes. uh, and lo and behold, it's stuff. some of the stuff nobody's ever seen before. Mm -hmm. And so she has, get this, she has donated this Yes, to the calendar, so and, you can have. And we really want to say thank you, Mary Nell and Randall, for doing this. This is going to make a fantastic new calendar. Indeed, and so on the calendar, and I want to remind you to do it as well on here, is that we want you to get her book. Yes. Uh, and you can go to ronwyatt.com. There's several other places to get it, but uh, Mary Nell and, and Randall get mm -hmm. the most from the book. If yes. you go directly to their website, yes. ronwyatt.com, get this book. You'll see all the photos in there. It's an amazing story, and it is a long story. It is more than uh, 260 pages yeah. worth of information about how uh, Moses yeah. and King Tut and all uh, uh, Moses's mother yeah. and uh, you know the, the daughter of Pharaoh. It all ties together. It is a fascinating uh, documentary, as it were, in this book. So please get the book at ronwyatt.com. Now, uh, speaking of getting things, now we have an opportunity to get a new love gift from Michael. Absolutely. Uh, he has done a teaching, as he always does every month, when he says, if those folks want to donate to this ministry, I want to give something back. Because Indeed. I really appreciate them. So he has created something called the Second Sabbath. And uh, this is a, a new teaching from Michael. And it is all about how a seemingly insignificant verse which, you know, we always read over those things. Right. We oh, say, sure. oh, well, sure. whatever, I don't understand that. Let's move on to what I do understand. Yeah. But he says, no, wait, stop. Read that again. It explains Yeshua's 70-week ministry and how it all ties together. So that's fantastic. That is in this teaching. And that's for a love gift of $50 yes. or more. Mm -hmm. And now for a love gift of $100 mm -hmm. or more, what do they get, Scott? Well, they get Michael's teaching, of course. And he said, I want you to give something oh. else. I want you to give something that folks can have in their home. So he, we have this. This is the Shalom welcome mat. <laughs> you yeah. put this at the front of your house and you can uh, wish everybody Shalom. And like you said always, Ted, that uh, when folks come into your house, we want yeah. things that can remind you, remind them of your faith. This will remind them before they even get in the door. That's right. So this is a Shalom welcome mat. You'll get that for $100 or more in addition to the teaching. And if you want to give a donation of $300 or more, we have this as well. And this is my favorite, Scott. This is a beautiful tapestry. And, and tell us more about this. Well, this this is a depiction of uh, Aaron, uh -huh. Elijah, and Moses. And Moses. Mm -hmm. uh, verses about each one of them at the bottom of the tapestry and at the top, you'll see in Hebrew, that is the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. 
And, and it has a and it has a rod pocket up yep. here to put a uh, rod to that so you can mount it on your wall mm -hmm. at home. The 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 quality of this fabric is just absolutely outstanding. It's thick. It it's, is, yeah. and, and it would be a beautiful addition to your home. And to, once again, to be able to express your faith to others, to family members, to neighbors, to friends. This is fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we would appreciate greatly if you would uh, give us a $300 donation and we are able to send this to you because this is going to be a fabulous addition to your home. Indeed. All right, thanks, Ted. Mm -hmm. All right, is the New Testament the inspired word of Yehovah or is it a fraudulent document of cherry-picked verses to force the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies? Hmm, find out next with Nehemia Gordon and Michael Rood, next. If you read the Bible on a regular basis, you have experienced it. The passage you've dismissed a dozen times suddenly jumps out and becomes the key to understanding everything. In this month's Love Gift teaching, Michael Rood shows you how to use an often dismissed passage to explain the timing of Yeshua's 70-week ministry. Most of your Bibles will say it was on another Sabbath because the second Sabbath after the first doesn't make any sense. Unless you're living in a biblical culture. The Second Sabbath by Michael Rood reveals the gravity of what Yeshua did and, more importantly, why he did it. But the only way to watch it is to receive it as our gift. Donate a $50 love gift and we'll send you The Second Sabbath on DVD or Blu-ray or for a donation of $100, we'll send you The Second Sabbath, plus a welcome mat with the Hebrew greeting, Shalom. A unique way to bless all your guests with the peace of Yehovah. Or as a special offer for a donation of $300, we'll send you The Second Sabbath, The Welcome Mat, and this 32-inch biblical tapestry featuring the Shema from Deuteronomy, plus depictions of Moses, Aaron, and Elijah. These gifts are available only in February and supplies are limited. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift, the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. Remember, this offer ends February 28th and supplies are limited. Call now to receive your gifts, 888-766-3610. That's 888-766-3610 or get your gifts online at monthlylovegift.com. When the resurrected saints are gathered together on the sea of fire and glass for the 10 days of awe, the 10 days of inspection, and then getting dressed for the marriage supper of the Lamb, we wait to hear if our name is called into the marriage supper of the Lamb, into the Mishkan in heaven, where Yeshua will sit at the head of the table, where, as John says, he sees the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of Yeshua, and he is sitting on it, and we go into the marriage supper of the Lamb, and this is when Yeshua's promise is finally fulfilled. He told his disciples on the night of the Last Supper, when he blessed the Most High with the prayer of the Melech Zadik, Baruch Atah Yehovah, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. I am your provision. By my stripes you will be healed. And then Yeshua, 
as he took his cup and he passed it around to his disciples, he said, I will not drink this again till I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. The marriage supper of the Lamb, Yeshua will take his cup and he will say again, this represented and still represents the renewing of the covenant, the covenant that offered to make you priests and kings, I paid the death penalty. I paid the price for the broken covenant and now, now you get to drink with me in my Father's kingdom. You are the ones that are going to live and reign with me upon the earth for a thousand years because I paid the price. Until the marriage supper of the Lamb, we do this in remembrance of him. Shabbat Shalom. After a long hiatus, uh, Nehemiah Gordon joined us in the studio for Shabbat Night Live last week, and I asked him to explain some of these messianic prophecies, then, uh, and he really started to go into the background on these prophecies that are not obvious. They are not obvious unless they are revealed, but there is a prophecy that Yeshua himself said that it applies to him. And him is going to now take us into Isaiah 61 and the prophecy that Yeshua uh, stood up yeah. in, the, in the synagogue mm -hmm. in Nazareth, and this is on the Sabbath that ends the week mm -hmm. that started with Shavuot. Actually, before that, we, let's read the context, Luke 11. Okay, okay. Um, is that where it is, Luke 11? Uh, help me out here. Um, uh, that's a little bit deep. Uh, I think it's uh, okay. uh, three. Luke, Luke three, three, even better. Try, try right. Luke three Luke first. three. Um, Am I anywhere close? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, okay. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Where you got it? All right. This is verse 20. Wait, 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 wait. Here. Okay, verse 17 of uh, chapter four. Okay. And there was delivered to him the book of the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Let, let, let's start even before that. Verse 14, okay, the Yeshua filled with the power of the spirit returned to Galilee and a report about him spread throughout all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and, the found, and found the place where it was written. Without any chapter or verse markings, No huh? chapters or verse markings. Now, there are spaces within the manuscripts that show you where different uh, prophecies end and begin, so you can kind of navigate a little bit by that. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, if there's no chapter. Chapter numbers didn't even exist. So um, I actually want to show the, if we can put this up here on the screen, yeah. Uh, what I did is I took Luke chapter four, uh, the quotation that we have here, and compared it what's in the Tanakh, which in the that is in the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text of the of the book of Isaiah. So the first part, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and the Tanakh has the Spirit of the Lord Yehovah is upon me. I wouldn't make anything of that. Um, I, I don't know if that's significant at all. And then we go on because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
But then in Luke, he has anointed me to bring good news to the humble. And that's actually really interesting. That's a translation issue. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. same word that means poor, aniyim, could be translated or even read as anavim, as humble. So that's, that's, that's something that happened on the Hebrew side when it was then translated into Greek, presumably. And then Isaiah 61, verse one continues, uh, to bind up the brokenhearted. Um, in the Tanakh, it's to bind up the brokenhearted. Um, well, that's not in his what he's reading. He doesn't read that part. He has sent me to proclaim release to the police, the captives, that's the same, and recovery of sight to the blind or release to the prisoners. That may actually be something in the Hebrew as well. That's a translation issue. Let's not get into that. What's really interesting to me here is Isaiah, uh, or, or in the Tanakh, as he continues, the next phrase doesn't come from Isaiah 61. It comes from Isaiah 58, verse 6, to let the oppressed go free. And then he ends his recitation to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But the verse in Isaiah continues in 61, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And we talked last time, and and that's uh, finished with that up there. We talked last time about how one of the messianic expectations that the Jews had back then and still have today is the ingathering of the exiles. Well, read it. Let's read on in Isaiah 61. Uh, Comfort all who mourn to provide those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit, etc. And then verse four, they shall build up the ancient ruin, ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. So what are we? what's being described here? What Isaiah is talking about is the Israelites are to be, because it's in the future for Isaiah, the Israelites are to be taken into exile and then they will come back at some point and rebuild their destroyed cities. Mm-hmm. Well, Yeshua didn't read that part. So you could mm-hmm. argue, I don't think just argue, it's clear that Yeshua is intentionally cutting off the verse in order to um, apply it to what he is doing. And if he had read on, anybody hearing that would say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't apply to what you're doing. You're, you, this isn't the day of vengeance of Yehovah. This isn't the ingathering of the exiles. So the very method that we talked about before, where it looks like they're taking a half a verse here and maybe another verse or two there, and they're not concerned with the entire context, but they're applying it messianically. And, and, and what do I mean by that? So Isaiah 7.14 is, is just the clearest example in the world. Jews will spend all this energy arguing with Christians and vice versa about whether the word Alma means young woman or virgin. And I say that's completely irrelevant. This is the the verse that talks about the young woman or the virgin shall give birth to a child and Mm -hmm. his name will be called Emmanuel. Okay, read the entire chapter of Isaiah 7 and no one disputes that this is a prophecy that applied to the time of King Ahaz. King Ahaz was the king of Judah and at the time he was under threat by two foreign powers. One was the kingdom of Syria and the other was the kingdom of Israel. Mm-hmm. And the prophecy of Isaiah there is to show King Ahaz that God is, uh, is gonna be with him. That's the Holy Emmanuel, God is with you. Mm-hmm. And that the two kingdoms he's afraid of will be destroyed by the time that child who is born will be a certain age. 
That's the meaning within its context for the era, for the age of King Ahaz. In other words, Isaiah speaking this, and it was fulfilled within about three to five years in the time of King Ahaz. Um, so, you know, we go back to Matthew who quotes this verse. And we talked about last time, is Matthew sitting there terrified, worried that some Jew is going to open up the scroll of Isaiah and find out that Isaiah 7.14 has nothing to do with a future Messiah? I don't think that's what he was doing. I think what Matthew was doing is, uh, according to Luke 24, there were all these prophecies that referred to something in the life of Yeshua and that was something that you could only know if it was revealed to you, because if you read it in context, you wouldn't see it. Mm-hmm. It had to be revealed to them that Isaiah seven fourteen, according to Luke 24, was a prophecy about Yeshua being the Messiah and born of a virgin. And if you understand that, then the issue of, okay, this applied to something in the life of, of, of King Ahaz 700 years before Yeshua is born, well, that's true but it also had a messianic application. And I think that's how the New Testament is using the Tanakh. It's taking phrases and verses that when they are isolated can apply to the life of Yeshua. Now, if they're doing this just because they think they're very clever and uh, well, then you have a problem with it. But if it was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit, by Yeshua, by you know, whatever, however you describe it there, Luke 24, um, I guess there would be Yeshua himself. Mm-hmm. Um, then that's not that 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 shouldn't be a theological problem for Christians. On the contrary, it should give it more authority, right? It's not that Matthew was very clever and cherry picked verses out of context to reply to Yeshua. These are the things that, according to Luke twenty four, were revealed to the disciples, and now they're being conveyed in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and other parts yeah. of the New Testament. Well, let's look at that uh, very statement of what Yeshua said uh, did apply, you know, mm-hmm. because he stopped oh, before he comes absolutely. to uh, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord and he closes the scroll. Right, so here's the beautiful thing. Yeshua had the scroll in front of him. He knew exactly what the continuation of the verse was. Right. You could say Matthew didn't know any better. Somebody could, believe me, someone's gonna argue that. There's gonna be some Jewish folks out in the audience who are very upset with me and say, Nehemiah, it's not that Matthew was terrified that he would be caught. He just didn't know what the rest of the verse said. You can't say that here. He has a scroll in front of him. He's even bringing a half a verse from Isaiah 58, 6. And it's interesting. I have the image here that he's unrolled the scroll and is reading over here in the far left column from Isaiah 61. Remember, there's no chapter numbers. And he, and he now jumps over to here to Isaiah 58, 6 to something else that he plans on doing to let the oppressed go free, right? He's saying, this is my mandate, what's written Mm -hmm. here. Even though I've taken it from two different sections, there's literally a half a verse or a phrase from Isaiah 58, six, and the rest is Isaiah 61, verse one, and part of verse two. What he's saying is, I'm I'm gonna do this. Now let's jump to his audience who heard this. Some people in his audience probably got really upset and said, how dare you take a half a verse out of context from three chapters, they didn't have chapters, right? But from three columns earlier, how dare you stop in the middle of of that verse? They did have verses, they just weren't numbered. You have to read the whole verse. Now that that would have been the attitude of some people. But many people in his audience were familiar with this. Jews had been doing this for hundreds of years at this point. We have writings of the Essenes in the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
The founder of the Essene movement is a man they refer to, we don't know his name, but he's called the Moret Sedek, the teacher of righteousness. And he lives sometime in the first or second century BCE. And what the Essenes do is they say, we know that God foretold the teacher of righteousness. How do we know that? Well, it's been revealed to us. Okay, you don't have to agree with them or believe them, but that's what they believed is that it was revealed to them things in the life of the teacher of righteousness and the prophets. And they take a prophecy that's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. And they say, this was the enemy of the teacher of righteousness, the wicked priest who came and attacked him on a certain date. And they have no problem doing this. Now, if you say to them, but that's about Nebuchadnezzar, they say, yeah, in the time of Habakkuk, that was about Nebuchadnezzar. But now, prophetically, it's talking about something in the future as well. And, th and this was routine. It was so routine. This is amazing, Michael. I did a teaching on, about this on my website, nehemiaswall.com, called Pesher and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I show how one of the prophecies of Balaam was translated into Aramaic in the Targum as instead of where Balaam talks about the key team, who are some nation, probably the Cypriots, but he, it's translated as the Romans. And it, it talks about the Romans crossing over a certain river. And when the Romans cross over that certain river, according to the Targum, the Messiah will come. It's the beginning of the end times. And in the year 115 AD, Trajan invaded the Parthian Empire, crossed over into Mesopotamia, and conquered everything between the, the, um, between the Euphrates and the Tigris River. It was the largest expansion of the Roman Empire during the course of its entire existence. Mm -hmm. And the Jews saw the prophecy of Balaam had, not as Balaam spoke it, but as it was interpreted in the Targum, had been fulfilled. Now, if you would have said to those Jews, this isn't a fulfillment of a prophet, prophecy, he's talking about the key team. The Romans aren't key team, they're some other nation. Well, they don't care that you said that. Yeah, it was key team in some other period. Here we're applying it to the Romans. How do you know to apply this to the Romans? Either it was revealed to some rabbi or was the common belief. I don't know, right, in that particular case. But the point is, this wasn't just some hypothetical belief. The Jews of the diaspora put their lives on the line. And they said, the Romans have invaded Mesopotamia, crossed the Euphrates River. Balaam prophesied, as it was translated in the Targum, that this would usher in the coming of the Messiah. And Jews from Libya to what today is Turkey rose up against the Romans and fought a two-year bloody war that um, is known in Jewish sources as uh, the War of Mered HaGaluyot, the War of the Exiles, has some other names. Um, or the War of Quitos, it's also called. Hmm. Um, so that was one of the generals who came and put it down. But there were Jews throughout the Middle East, like I said, from North Africa and, and Cyrenaica, today Libya, all the way to Turkey, who rose up and fought the Romans because of this exact type of interpretation. And sure, there were probably people, probably people like me, who said, hey guys, it doesn't say Romans, it says Kitim in this prophecy. It didn't matter. It had been interpreted that way in the Targum, and it was enough for people to bet their lives on it, and in that case, they lost their lives. Mm -hmm. So this was a common method of interpretation. It was not something that would have been alien. And here's the thing that rubs me kind of the wrong way. I have to be honest with you, Michael. So I'll see these um, uh, rabbis who are debating Christians, 
And the rabbi says, let's look at the context. Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. And in the context, it's talking about Israel, not, not Jesus. All right. And they'll say, how dare you take our verses out of context? The rabbi says. Now, maybe the rabbi doesn't know about Luke 24, that according to the New Testament, Matthew is conveying information that was revealed by Yeshua, right? Maybe he doesn't know that. Maybe if he knows, he doesn't care about it, right? Um, but when he interprets the Torah for the purpose of practical things in his life, he's not, he doesn't follow the context. He, I'll just give you an easy example. It says three times in the Torah, don't boil a kid in his mother's milk. In the historical context, we know today there was a pagan sacrifice where they would take the milk, they would take a kid uh, from its mother and they would boil it in the, in the milk of its mother as an off, a fertility offering to, it, to, Easter. to, to Easter, to mm-hmm. Ashtoreth. Mm-hmm. The, the, or Ishtar, Easter. Um, so we know today historically the, the context of that. Uh, it's mentioned in the Ras Shamra writings from, from Ugarit in, in Syria. So we have ancient Canaanite writings that tell us about this. In fact, mm-hmm. I'm told that even today in, in Lebanon, where many of the Canaanites survived, that it's a, considered a delicacy, kid in the milk of its mother. Mm-hmm. Um, so it mm-hmm. had a ritual, um, uh, pagan ritual character to it. Well, the rabbis say, no, that means don't eat meat and milk together. And you say to the rabbi, how did you get that? And what's the answer? It was revealed to us. Where was it revealed to you? Well, to Moses on Mount Sinai. Is that mentioned in the Torah? No, it's not mentioned in the Torah. That is, there was information that was revealed to them, they claim. You can believe it or not believe it, right? But the claim is they have information that was revealed to them. And it's not that some rabbi is so clever that he opened up, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk, and he came to the conclusion on his own that it means don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. They believe, through the authority of their rabbis, that this was revealed to Moses. Matthew, through the authority of the apostles and the disciples, must have believed that this was the interpretation revealed by Yeshua to the disciples of, of Hosea 11.1. And I, and I once heard a debate of this, uh, uh, well, it wasn't really a debate, it was a lecture by a rabbi. He came to Jerusalem for three days and he was explaining why, why, how the Christians twist the New Testament. And I raised my hand during the Q&A and I asked this very question. I said, why is it when you live your life on a daily basis, you interpret things according, not according to the language and the context, but based on your tradition that you believe goes back to Moses on Mount Sinai, but the Christian, when he does the same thing in Matthew, you, you criticize him for take, you say, Matthew took it out of context. And you know what his answer, his answer was one of the most honest things I've ever heard from a rabbi. <laughs> his answer was, I accept the authority of my sages. If they accept the authority of Matthew, then that's what they should follow. But I, he said, but I reject the authority of Matthew. So then it comes down to a question of authority. Mm-hmm. Now, there's only one who can cut through that authority. If God wants to reveal something, he can reveal it to whoever he wants. I believe in not putting God in a box. I used to be the biggest box creator for God. I would say, God, stay in that box. You're not supposed to do these things. Yeah. I know you're not supposed to do these things. Yet God does whatever he wants, I found over the generations. I've told you this story in the audience, but I'll share it again. It's been a while. I went with Keith to South Africa. And we went into a place called Kayaliche. Kayaliche is, is one of the most violent, dangerous um, slums called a, a, a township outside of Cape Town. We were told if you walk into Kayaliche, they will kill you. 
And Keith said, well, I, Keith, can walk into Kyalichi. And he said, no, you can't. They will know you're an outsider and they'll kill you. Hmm. They're not looking at the color of your skin. They're going to know you're an outsider and they're going to kill you. Wow, scary. Keith says, I insist we go to Kyalichi. We end up going to visit this pastor. It was a pastor who uh, had a little church. He lived in the back of the church. He told us how the bricks were donated. They don't have any money to build a church. People are living in shacks. Right. Cardboard. Um, All kinds of, I mean, you can't even imagine until you see it. Road signs. I've seen it. Yeah. Unbelievable. Tearing um, down road signs and they, well, they I mean, they were make tell- a lean to it. They, they make were, a house on They it. were telling me how uh, in the winter it's very cold and people use kerosene to heat their homes, homes being these little shacks. Mm-hmm. And all it takes is for something to get, you know, it's like Mrs. O'Leary's cow. You know, ha- thousands of people's homes could be burned down, hundreds killed, and this happens on a routine basis, they told me. Mm-hmm. It's a long time ago. Um, I don't know if it gotten better or worse, but hopefully it's gotten better. Well, so... I walk in there, and this man is telling us what, what you know about how he built the church, and um, he'd actually been a gang leader, and then decided to give his life over to God, and um, he tells us uh, about what he's doing, and then he asks about us. He says, well, what, "Where are you from? Who are you?" I said, "Well, uh, I live in Israel. studied at Hebrew University." He said, "Wait, wait, wait, stop! You live in Israel?" Do you, he says, "Do you speak Hebrew?" I said, "Yeah, of course I speak Hebrew. I lived in Israel for over a decade at that point." He says, about seven years ago, I had a dream. And in that dream, I saw four letters. And I've always believed they were Hebrew letters, but I don't know Hebrew. And I've been waiting for years to somehow meet someone who knew Hebrew. And in this uh, church in Kyalicha, surrounded by sewage running through the streets, I never imagined, I I mean, he hoped, he prayed, but what are the odds somebody who knows Hebrew is going to walk into this place? Not very good. And I walk in. And I said, can you, you know, can you show us what the letters look like? He says, no, I don't know how to write that language. So I write down yud heh vav heh, show it to him. He says, no, that's not really it. I show it to Keith. Says Keith, Keith says to me, I can't even read what you just wrote, Nehemia. Your handwriting is so sloppy. So then Keith shows him <laughs> the letters in printed form, yud heh vav heh. And he says, those are what I saw. Those were the four letters. Now that really got me thinking. That shook me to my uh, very core, Michael, because... No, God, what are you doing? Get back in your box. My upbringing was that God doesn't speak to Christian pastors, certainly not Christian pastors in a slum, in a township in in, uh, South Africa. Um, That's just not what God does. Maybe God speaks to very righteous Jews on very special occasions, but not to Christian pastors. That was the paradigm I was raised with. Mm. And here I realized God did a thing. And I think... He may have done it for his own reasons. But my takeaway from that thing was God was showing me that, hey, I, first of all, I do what I want. I talk to who I want. It might not be what you think. I don't live in the box that you've created for me. Now, at the same time, this man had the dream. Set, and he waited seven years for someone to walk into his church. Imagine that. Um, he actually met us at the entrance of Kyalicha so we wouldn't get killed. And we went in with him. So, so people can't just wander in the church speaking Hebrew. It doesn't happen that way. So for seven years, he waited, and he had the dream, but he couldn't interpret it. I had the, I had the knowledge, and it was, quite frankly, very rudimentary knowledge of Hebrew could have, could have answered this question, but 
You know, I happen to be somebody who loves God's name, and that's a major part of my life, mm-hmm. researching that and studying that. And the minute you say to somebody a four-letter word in English, it's not a good word. You say a four-letter uh, Hebrew word, you think of you think of the Tetragrammaton, the name of Yehovah. And I realize God doesn't live in the boxes that we've created for him. He does what he wants. Um, he's bigger than the boxes we've created for him. And, and um, I, I think... It was it was a humbling lesson for me, Michael, that I had the knowledge, but I didn't have the revelation. I didn't have that dream. Mm-hmm. And God knew one day I would walk into that church and that those two things would come together and there would be information that would come out of that. There would be revelation. Yeah. This, uh, this, this prophecy that Yeshua read from Isaiah, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he comes down to this point to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, mm-hmm. and he closes a scroll. He deliberately stops mm-hmm. right in the middle of a sentence. Mm-hmm. He doesn't read the next line, and he says, this day is a scripture fulfilled in your ears. If he had read the rest of the sentence, that he couldn't have said, this day oh, is a scripture fulfilled. Yeah. <laughs> they would have said, liar. We still see people in Rome who are... We still people still people right. in Assyria who are captives, right? We still see Jews in Egypt who are prisoners there. How can you say that this has been fulfilled? We're not rebuilding the ancient cities. So he intentionally ended where he ended. Absolutely. And this is exactly what the Christian world has done. Mm-hmm. They have stopped right there and and they have said, you know, like as is in Matthew, mm-hmm. uh, until Heaven and earth pass, one jot, one tittle, one vowel, one consonant, will not pass from the Torah till mm-hmm. all's fulfilled, and then they say it's all been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. That is, that's ludicrous. Mm-hmm. You know, no, if all was fulfilled, then he would have been reigning from uh, the throne of David in Jerusalem because that prophecy has to be fulfilled. The day of vengeance of our God has got to be fulfilled, and he stopped short of that. As, uh, as Paul said to Timothy, he rightly divided the word of God because mm-hmm. that's not what was on the agenda at that point. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord, that's on the Shabbat that follows Shavuot. And so it's the end of the week, and so that the acceptable year of the Lord really began on Shavuot. The next Shavuot is Acts chapter two, and that is the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Mm -hmm. So that is the acceptable year of the Lord. That's what he came to bring, but this is what I'm saying. The whole Christian world has missed this, the Messiah coming and reigning upon the earth. Instead, they have this replacement theology, which Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, I, I, I say this is uh, uh, gospel quartet theology, people who never read the Bible, but they get paid to sing uh, great and glorious songs. Because mm-hmm. now you have people that have replaced the whole messianic kingdom in ruling and reigning upon the earth and everything that it says in the book of the Revelation, mm-hmm. and they've replaced it with, we die, we get to go to heaven immediately, we check in at the gate, we're given a harp, we've got some wings mm-hmm. that we strap on, and we go sit on a cloud and then ask uh, any passing uh, apostles stupid questions for the rest of eternity. That That's the picture that's given today. Mm-hmm. You die immediately, and immediately you go to heaven, or you immediately go to hell, and there's no judgment. There's none of these things that we read about in 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 the scriptures. Right, and right. And I, I say we don't even 
They don't even read what is in the New Testament, but these are all prophecies mm-hmm. I'm looking at from a, a Jewish perspective. This is the expectation, the Messiah reigning upon the earth, everyone coming up to Jerusalem to worship the king. Well, and definitely the Jewish understanding uh, from the Tanakh is that, the like I said, there'll be the gathering of the exiles, the uh, defeat of the enemy of Israel, gather the exiles, bring peace to the world, and part of that will, and here's where Jews will say, we don't know. Part of that somehow relates to the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment. And then the question is, well, what happens first? Does the Messiah show up? And then there's the resurrection of the dead. And then there's a judgment. We don't know. That, okay. that's, that's, there's a lot of different prophecies, the war of Gog and Magog. Their chronology is not given in the Tanakh. But there right. are a series of events that are going to happen, that we believe will happen, that everyone recognizes as messianic prophecies. And the culmination of everything is clearly there's world peace and the Messiah reigns as king of the world. Now, let's go back to Acts chapter one, verses six and seven. Mm -hmm. So when they had come together, this is the disciples, according to uh, what we saw in Luke 24, the 11 disciples, Yeshua comes to them and they ask him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? meaning that you're gonna rise up and defeat the Romans, that there'll be a physical flesh and blood king on earth who will rule over Israel and the world. He doesn't say to them, that's not gonna happen. I came for some completely different purpose that will never happen. Forget about it. That's now been replaced by the blessings of the church. He doesn't say that. That's actually how the church interpreted it historically. Mm-hmm. If you go to the church fathers, they say, let's take some an easy example, Ezekiel 40 through 48 describes the physical dimensions of the future temple, what we call the third temple. The church fathers say, no, that's all allegories and metaphors for things in the life of the church. There never will be a future temple in which the Messiah will bring sacrifices. I mean, it talks about right. the, the, the prince bringing sacrifices coming in, uh, uh, in the Eastern Gate. They say, no, that's all allegories for the life of the church. That's not what Yeshua said. In verse seven, he replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the father is set by his own authority, right? So the kingdom, he's not saying the kingdom won't be restored, the Davidic kingdom. He's just saying, nobody knows the day or the hour, not the son, not even the son, only the father, right? He had said that in the gospels. Right, Matthew um, 24. Same, same concept there, right? And they're talking, Matthew 24, about the kingdom coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so he's not rejecting the idea that every Jew understood up until then. He's just saying, okay, between now and then, here's something else that's gonna take place. Here's something, a message that will go out maybe for the Jews and the world. Um, it'll be spread to the world as a light to the nations. Um, Paul talks about that from Isaiah, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in Isaiah, Israel is supposed to be the light to the nations and they don't do a very good job of it. So Paul says, okay, I'm a Jew. I'll be that light to the nations and I'll share that information, the, the good news of Yeshua. So, so the point is he's, he's not rejecting, um, Yeshua is not rejecting this messianic expectation. He's just delaying it. And this is why Jews will often talk about the coming of the Messiah and Christians will talk about the second coming. And what you're saying is really profound, which is that yes, Christians pay lip service to the second coming, but it's not the one described in the Tanakh. Right. The one described in the Tanakh is there will be a flesh and blood uh, uh, rain on earth. That might be the new heavens and the new earth, right? Maybe uh, we won't get pimples and cancer, right? I mean, okay, fine. But the, here on earth, when Jews talk about a portion in the world to come, they don't mean flying up with wings in the heaven. They mean a piece of land 
in the land of Israel when the, um, when the Messiah reigns on the earth, in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, that is what it means to have a portion in the world to come. From, from, in general, when the Jews talk about this world and the world to come, the world to come is the reign of the King Messiah. Um, now, you, talk, you said something before, and I, I don't want to leave the audience confused here. Um, if I were to take a half a verse here and a half a verse there and create my own theology, I don't think that's the right thing to do. I think I, coming to the Bible, have to read it in context. Mm -hmm. The whole point I was trying to make with Luke 24 is what Luke is saying is it's not Matthew who did that. It wasn't Matthew and Mark and John and Luke who cherry-picked verses out of context, but that these were revealed, these, these messianic applications were revealed to them um, by Yeshua after the resurrection. Okay, let's uh, let's delve back into something you touched on. Yeah. Uh, that according to the scriptures, he would be in the grave uh, and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Right. So there's no verse that explicitly says that. And so... The, well, but but the, Paul says that according right. that he's raised right. according to the scriptures. So Paul says right. that too. So, Correct. So what is Absolutely. the understanding? So, so, so there's two possibilities. There's more than two possibilities, but we're running out of time. Let's talk about two main possibilities. Okay. Number one, there was some version of the Bible that's been lost and we don't have it anymore. And there are people who have suggested that, that there are Hebrew verses that were lost and we don't have them anymore. Uh, and those are the ones where it said that he would rise uh, on the third day. And when they said, according to the scriptures, they meant Psalm 156 or whatever, right? Right, so, something we no longer have. That's one possibility. I don't think that's what they meant. I think what they meant was, Isaiah 53 and uh, Hosea where it talks about he'll, uh, you'll rise on the third day. There's a bunch of different passages which don't obviously on their surface say these things, but were interpreted by um, Paul and uh, revealed by Yeshua to have this meaning, according, okay. to, according to Luke, right? Um you know, in other words, people are saying, Nehemiah, are you saying Yeshua revealed that to my Jewish audience? No, I'm saying that's what Luke is saying, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to understand the New Testament on its own terms. And if I say that Matthew thought he was very clever and he could pull a fast one and take a verse out of context, I'm not being honest in interpreting Matthew based on his own terms, or at least Luke based on his own terms. Mm -hmm. Let's agree on that. That's explicit. Meaning these were things that were revealed by Yeshua and all of these prophecies that seem to, from a Jewish perspective, where you say, what are you talking about? Where do you get the Messiah here? Psalm 22 is David complaining about his life. Well, all these things happened in the life of Yeshua. Well, okay. So, I mean, there's parts of Psalm 22 I could point to you and, and, and you'll have to agree, oh, well, I guess Yeshua didn't do that half of the verse, right? But they weren't saying that he did, right? The point was that these uh, uh, things were applied messianically, they use the term Christologically, right, to apply to the life of Yeshua in the same way the people of the Dead Sea Scrolls would read something in one of the prophets and say this applied, this referred to something in the life of the teacher of righteousness. Well, no, that was Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, sure, in the time of that prophet, it was Nebuchadnezzar. But oh. now the application for the life of our prophet is, is this. And, and, and here's one of the key points. I actually wrote my master's thesis on this, Michael. Um, that uh, there was a Karaite sage in the ninth century who did a very similar thing. And he didn't claim to have any special revelation. So how could he do it? How could he take something in Daniel and say it referred to Mohammed? 
right? Not in a good way, mm. by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, mm-hmm. And he explains that there's the prophecy in Amos. God does not do a matter without revealing it to his servants, the prophets. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting there under in 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 uh, in the diaspora, under Muslim rule, suffering under the persecution of Islam, and saying, "Surely this was foretold to the prophets." If God foretold to the prophets the Babylonian conquest and the Assyrian conquest and the Persian liberation, how is it possible God did not foretell the rise of Islam, uh, as an, let's say from his perspective, as an evil force in the universe? Mm-hmm. And so he finds a verse that maybe in its context wouldn't be obvious that it refers to the rise of Islam, but he uh, says, okay, this must be pointing to these events. And there, and there may be an aspect to that where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they look at the, the life of Yeshua and they say, we were, told, they, we were told that there were things throughout the Tanakh that point to Yeshua. Now we've got to go hunt down those things. That's, that's another possibility. It's not what Luke 24 says. Luke 24 says they were revealed by Yeshua. Mm-hmm. But okay. there's another possibility to say, okay, Yeshua revealed 350 there's another thousand there I can go find on my own. And maybe in the context, they don't refer to that. But, okay, we know that God wouldn't do something without revealing it to his servants, the prophets. So how about this application that uh, yeah. uh, as Jonah, Yeshua says, as Jonah mm-hmm. was three days and three nights in mm-hmm. the belly of the great fish, so he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and raised on the third day. Mm-hmm. So you know, giving that example of Jonah Mm-hmm. is that he was swallowed by the great fish, mm-hmm. three days and three nights later, puked up, uh, made alive on the shore, walks into Nineveh, calls him to repentance, right. yeah, the yeah. dead come alive and, and walk so, in there, that, so, that, that yeah. being a, a messianic prophecy by Yeshua's own So own I, I, would argue that's a, I would argue that's a little bit different because there Yeshua takes the example of Jonah and applies it to himself and clearly in a metaphorical sense because Jonah didn't die during those three days, right? So he's not literally applying it to himself, but he's saying it has a, a, a sort of an application to his life. Um, what Yeshua didn't say in that passage is, uh, Jonah prophesied an event that would happen in the future, and it was that I would come, be in the grave for three days, and then rise. Well, no, Jonah's describing his own life of what happened, right? So there it's a little bit different. There, um, he's, it, it's, uh, you could say there's an application there, um, but it's explicitly saying, we're not saying this is a, 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 a that Jonah's, meaning he, it's clearly acknowledged that the Jonah story is true. Mm-hmm. He's just saying, right. just as this happened to Jonah, the sign is going to be that it happens to me as well, mm-hmm. right? And, okay. and obviously a slightly different way because he didn't die. Um, Jonah didn't die. Um, so, and here it's a little bit different. Here we're dealing with a situation where uh, Matthew is bringing a verse and Luke is bringing a verse and you look at it in context, you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like it has anything to do with a Messiah. Uh, sometimes it does, right? And then you'll read it and you're like, okay, well, Yeshua fulfilled verses two and three, but not four and five. Like something as simple as Micah five, where will the Messiah be born in Bethlehem of Judah? Continue to read in Micah. And it talks about what Christians will call the second coming, right? In other words, he didn't fulfill that entire prophecy, even according to the New Testament. It's, he filled the part that they quoted, Mm-hmm. Right, and there's other parts of the prophecy; those will be fulfilled in some other context in the future, presumably according to the New Testament. Okay, okay, that makes any sense? Yeah. 
Okay, well, this, um, uh, any other, we've just got a couple, no, we don't even have a couple minutes, my goodness. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, has been quite quite an adventure to go on this with Nehemia, and I really wanted to for him to give his perspective on this, so that so that uh, the Christian world can understand the uh, these prophecies, these messianic prophecies, and you know, and as I use the word uh, with Nehemia, uh, some of these vague prophecies. But Nehemia really uh, uh, corrected me on that. They're not vague prophecies. They had to be made known. They ha- it had to be revealed the messianic meaning behind these things. And yet we are calling the Christian world to understand Yeshua is going to reign upon the earth for a thousand years. He is going to rule from the throne of David. This is what Yeshua talks about. Those who do his will now, who do their jobs as priests and kings now, who take the talents they have been given and they invest those talents in the kingdom, that they will be given rule over cities in the messianic kingdom. They will have authority. That 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 salvation is by grace, but reward is a merit. If you do nothing, then you get no reward for that. But yet the whole Christian world is basically wanting to just die and go to heaven and live in heaven forever. Yeshua is not going to be in heaven forever. Yeshua is to go gather together the saints. There will be a resurrection. There will be a judgment seat of the Messiah. There will be the sea of fire and glass. There will be the marriage supper of the land, the feast of tabernacles. Then Yeshua returns to rule the earth on Hashanah Rabbah, the last great day. And then at the end of a thousand years, that is when there is going to be a final resurrection, a final judgment, a new heaven and new earth. So even though the prophecies and the prophets do not give us these time frames, Yeshua gave us the time frame and the progression of events in the revelation of Yeshua Messiah as the conquering reigning king, the judge over all the earth, and he gives us the order of events so that we will not be ignorant of what he is about to do. So I'd say to the Christian world, wake up, smell the coffee, Yeshua is coming back and he's not happy with the way things have been going on. And if you read the opening of the book of Revelation, you see he's not happy. And he says, get things corrected, get things cleaned up, or I will get things cleaned up. And if I have to correct it and clean it up, it ain't gonna be a pretty sight. Well, I'm going to leave you those words. Nehemia, thanks for being with us for this. Thank you, Michael. Uh, I'm going to have Nehemia back. He has got such treasures that he has come back from Europe. And so now we're going to go into the rest of these things. So Shabbat Shalom, Torah fans. Shavuot Tov. Have a good week. And we'll see you back here on Shabbat Night Live. Bye-bye.